Give you all a very warm welcome to our service today. It's lovely to see you all who have gathered in. Just we were to apology. I've been struggling this week with a, a cough near the whole week, so lateral flowed and cleared. Uh, so I'm glad to be here. But uh, if I sh- uh, stutter a wee bit through, please forgive me. I'll not go to the door, uh, just in case anyway. Just a few announcements. Evening service tonight, quarter past six. We'll be looking at Daniel 11 again at the control of God in the world around us. And we'll have our prayer time for Ukraine after the service this evening here in the meeting house. Tomorrow night, we're starting our Young Adults group. This is for four Monday nights. God willing, starting tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. All in their 20s and 30s would be very welcome to that over in the minor hall at 8. Tuesday, Kirk Session meet, half past seven. And then Wednesday at 8 is our pre-communion service uh, this week. Thursday morning, Friends of Vispa prayer meeting at Colin and Gillian's house at half ten. All be very welcome to that. And then Friday evening is Friends of Vispa uh, Thanksgiving at half past seven. And you'd all be very welcome to that. It's always a very good evening. And really encourage you to come along and invite others to that as well. Next Sunday is communion. Uh, we will be continuing to do communion, uh, this time using the little packs on the way in. So just be aware of that, and there, there will be some gluten-free packs available for those. There will be packs available in the vestibule, the vestibule room upstairs, and also in the church hall who want to uh, make use of that. Just to mention Friday week, that's the 3rd of June, uh, there's going to be a Sunday school fun night, God willing, uh, at the manse, uh, half past six to eight. There'll be bouncy castles and other stuff. So that's Friday the 3rd of June, half past six for Sunday school, and then 10 past eight also that evening for the Bible class. You're very welcome. That's down at the manse. And then just to say in two weeks' time, uh, God willing, the Jubilee Sunday, we're going to have a special Jubilee service. So I encourage you to make a point of being here and encourage others to come along as well. Uh, next Sunday, to remind you, is the last Sunday for Sunday school. As we come and worship God together, let's just read a few verses from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the merry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You notice there, there's a link between singing praise to the Lord and others coming to fear Him. We're going to sing Psalm 40 together.
Let's join together in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for that lovely picture of salvation in that psalm. Father, we were those in the Mary clay. We were in the pit. We were in this hole, Father, that it was too deep for us ever to get out of. We would try, Father, by our good deeds. We could try by our religion. But, Father, we would just be clambering, as it were, up against the, the wet sides of that pit and just pulling more and more dirt down on top of ourselves. And then, Father, you and your grace, you came and you lifted us. You and your great power and love took us out of that dreadful pit. You put our feet on firm ground. You give us a new place to stand. And Father, we realize that salvation is all of your doings, all of your grace of God. Well, Father, help us just to be so convinced of that. Father, we're so enslaved by sin. We're so guilty by sin. Father, we cannot make ourselves right with you. But Father, we thank you that when we were hopeless and helpless, Jesus is the one who has rescued us. And He has rescued us by coming right down into that pit Himself, coming enduring Your wrath for the sin of His people. He who had no sin becoming sin for us, so we could become the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, we marvel at that love. We marvel at the grace of Jesus. And Father, it is well that we sing there that we have put a new song into our mouths, a hymn of praise to our God. And truly, O oh God, in response to what Jesus has done for us, you truly deserve that we are a people who will worship you, glorify and honor you with our lips, with our singing, but also with our living. Uh, forgive us yet, Father, how we fail in that in so many different ways, even over this past week. Oh, Father, help us to learn, even as we begin this new series today about discipleship, to just learn afresh what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Oh, Father, we just think of the things that distract us, the things that lead us astray. Forgive us, Father, and just help us to be those single-minded people like, like Matthew, like Peter, like James and John of old, who were so determined to leave everything and to follow you. Oh, Father, for such grace we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Amazing grace, my chains are gone.
Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 25. And my Bible is entitled, as it is on the screen there, The Cost of Discipleship. So Luke 14 and 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Amen. Boys and girls, you'd like to come up the front for a minute or two, please, and I'll speak to you. Thank you. Okay, great to see you all. Okay, right, we question for you. Okay, who do you think would wear or have things like this, okay? Would have maybe a dark hat, okay? Okay, I'll put it on, okay? Have a dark hat. Put on maybe dark sunglasses, okay? Wear a really long, dark coat, okay? And also might use binoculars and look a wee bit shady. Who might use of all those things? Yes, ma'am? A spy. Spot on. Someone who looks very sinister like that, you would think, oh, that person might be a spy. And we're going to think today about a man who was a minister, a minister like me, but he was also a spy, okay? Now, I'm not a spy, okay? If I was a spy, I wouldn't tell you, of course. But this man is a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'll see his name up there. And Dietrich was born in Germany. We'll see in the next picture. He was born away back in 1906. That's over 100 years ago. His parents were called Carl and Paula. They were very, very intelligent people. His father was a neurologist, type of a doctor that focuses on the brain. He was also a, a professor who taught other doctors and that, so he was a very, very clever man. And, well, Dietrich, he was very clever as well. In the next picture, we see him with his brothers and sisters. There were eight children in the family, and most of them who grew up, grew up to be amazing people, very, very smart and clever as well. But then when he was 12, or actually when he was get this right, eight years old, 
something terrible happened, the First World War. And because he was from Germany, he was on the opposite side from what indeed our grandparents or great-grandparents would have been on. And we see in the next picture, the war had a big impact on him because two of his brothers, Walter and Klaus, went and served in the war. And sadly, Walter was killed towards the end of the war. And Klaus, he survived, but he came back from the war because of what he saw in the First World War, which was absolutely dreadful. He lost all faith in God. He turned away from God. And by the end of the war, Dietrich, who was 12, and because of what he had heard about the war and the impact of the war in Germany, he became a pacifist. That means he didn't believe in joining the army. He didn't believe in fighting at all. Now, next picture, when he was 17, just 17 years of age, he went to Tübingen University to study theology. Theology is the study of the Bible, the study of God. He was there for quite a number of years. Not only did he get his degree, he studied and got a PhD. And doing his PhD, which became a, a doctor, he was seen to be so clever. What he wrote to become a, a doctor was seen as so clever, and he was beginning to get a name for himself. But he wanted to go into the ministry, but at this stage, he was too young to become a minister. So the age of just 24, we see in the next picture, he traveled across to America. He went to New York, and there he went to university to study a bit more, but also to teach at the same time. But what really impacted him was not anything that he learned at this theological college. He went to a church, which we see in the next picture. It was called Abyssinian Baptist Church. It was in Harlem, and in Harlem in New York, everybody would have had a lot darker skin than we were. They were colored people, and this was a church made up of African-American people. And he was impacted by this church. For the first time, he saw people and met people who really knew God so well. He had learned so much about God, and now he met these people who really knew God well. And this brought him closer and closer in his relationship with God. He stayed there for a year, and then he headed back home. We see in the next picture. He came back home. He, he taught at Berlin University. He taught about God, about theology. He also, at the same time, joined a church and taught the Sunday school. But just a couple of years after he was back in Germany, next picture, this man became the chancellor. Adolf Hitler. And as soon as he became chancellor, Dietrich spoke against him. Some people in the church were saying, Adolf Hitler's a great man. He's going to be a great leader for us in Germany. Dietrich didn't believe that. He had just become a minister the same year, and he spoke on the radio. He spoke in church that this man was really wicked. This man was really evil. Hitler was very clever. And not only did he want to control Germany, he wanted to control the church. And so he got a man that was loyal to him to become the bishop. He appointed him to be bishop over the whole church. Well, Dietrich and others said, this isn't right. And we see in the next picture, they left the church, they walked out of a big meeting, and they formed their own church called the Confessing Church. And they said, not Hitler, but Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, Dietrich, 
He was now a minister. He still taught in university. But then we see in the next picture, he began teaching in a seminary. It's like a Bible college for young ones who would go on and serve in the churches, ministers or missionaries in those ways. And from 1935 to 1937, he did this. And then the Gestapo, that was the secret police. They came and they closed the seminary down. Arrested quite a number of the teachers, arrested quite a number of the students, but Dietrich, he wasn't arrested at this point. But just towards the end of that time, he finished his book, which we see in the next picture. And this is a book which I've got with me here today. When I was studying to be a minister, I had to read this book and study it, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote this book. It was all about being faithful to the Lord Jesus and being a true follower of Jesus. But just a couple of years after that, the Second World War began. Germany invaded Poland, and the United Kingdom and France and so many other countries declared war against Germany. What would Dietrich do? He was now getting a name as someone who was against Hitler, and so he left Germany to go to America to be safe. He was only in Germany a matter of days when he realized, no, this is wrong. My people are having to stand against Hitler. And so he traveled back to Germany. And he did something which was very clever. He joined the Advar. The Advar was the German intelligence organizations, the spies. And he says, I will be a spy for you, Germany. I will go to other countries and meet church leaders and see what's happening in other countries, and I will spy for Germany. I will spy for Hitler to let him know what's going on. But his real plan was this. When he would go to these other countries, he would tell the people how dangerous Hitler is, what Hitler is doing, and he would tell them how they can help the people in Germany who were fighting against Hitler. And one of the reasons why he was so against Hitler, we're seeing the next picture, was in 1941, the Jewish people had to wear a gold star on their clothes and started to be taken by Hitler to these camps where many of them would be killed. And what was happening was that indeed Dietrich, he was busy trying to help Jewish people. He helped Jewish people escape from Germany. He would travel to Norway, to Switzerland, to Sweden. The Germans were thinking he's there being our spy, but really he was helping organize opposition against Hitler and helping the Jews escape. His family, we see in the next picture, they were all in this together. His family were all opposed to Hitler. They really wanted Hitler to be defeated, to be stopped. Now, at the beginning, Dietrich thought you… Remember, he was a pacifist. He thought that you shouldn't fight. But he, then he said this, when a madman is driving a car, our job is not just to mend the wounds of those who have been hit by the madman. Our job is to stop the madman from driving the car. And he believed it was his Christian duty to do this. We see in the next picture, he got engaged to a lady called Maria. Now, he didn't see Maria for a long time. Even when he got engaged, he didn't get down on his knee before her and say, will you marry me? He did it in a letter. And he wouldn't see her very much after this. Because in the next picture, he ended up being arrested. 
He got arrested by the Germans for helping some of the Jews escape. They had caught on that he was not just being a spy for them, but was working for the other countries as well. And he was put in prison. Maria visited him in prison. That's the first time she saw him after she got engaged. And this was 1943 in April time. But the people that he was friends with, the resistance, they had a plan. And their plan was to kill Hitler because he was so wicked, killing the Jewish people, hurting their country so much. And so they planned to kill Hitler. And the next picture, and this was happening while Dietrich was in prison, his brother called Klaus and his brother-in-law called Rudiger were involved in this plan. And on the 20th of July, 1944, they put a bomb in the room beside where Hitler was. It was in a briefcase. But somebody came and saw the briefcase, not knowing what it was, moved it to another part of the room, and when it went off, Hitler's ears were damaged, and I think his trousers were damaged, but sadly, he survived. Hitler was furious, and he rounded up all that he could find, and indeed, Dietrich's brother, Klaus, his brother-in-law, Rüdiger, they were arrested. At this point, Dietrich was then moved to a different prison run by the Gestapo. And things weren't looking too good. At this time, the British forces, the American forces, had arrived in France and were making their way to Germany. The war was coming towards an end. But the following April, we see in the next picture, Dietrich was moved with other prisoners to a place called Flossenburg. And sadly, on the 9th of April, two years after being in prison, on the orders of Hitler, he was killed by the Germans. But this is, these were the last words that he said. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Although Hitler was, had him killed because he loved Jesus, this was his greatest moment because he was going to come and to meet with Jesus and to be with Jesus in heaven. What does Germany think of Dietrich today? We see in the next picture, some of the German stamps have his picture on him as a great hero, a man who indeed served the Lord and was devoted to rescuing Germany from evil. If you ever go to Westminster Abbey in London, we'll see in the next picture, you'll see a statue there. I was at that abbey and I missed the statue. I must have to go look again. There's a statue of Dietrich Bonhoeffer there. The world remembers him as a brave man, a man who loved Jesus. But I want you to remember him as a man who said above everything else, you have to be serious about being a disciple of Jesus. Following Jesus is more important than anything else. We're going to sing your hymn now, a lovely hymn, All for Jesus.
I meant to say to young people, uh, parents, uh, I'll say to you, there are some books available on the left-hand side about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There are three different children's books that are available, probably suitable for late primary and early secondary school age, so uh, it'd be good for folk to borrow those. And if you want to borrow one of the books at a time and for them to read that, I think it'd be very good for them. We're thinking today about the cost of discipleship. We're beginning this series on the subject of discipleship, and I'm going to use this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, as a, an outline for us. Uh, I'm going to use a lot of quotes from him. Uh, sometimes I'll say I'm quoting him, sometimes I'll not even say that to keep things flow. Uh, it's a very significant book. His thinking was quite radical, certainly for the time that he lived in, and so much of what he taught is thoroughly uh, biblical. And we'll look at a lot of the Bible passages. In many ways, it's a book that's based on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll look at a lot of the Bible passages that he dealt with as we go through this together. It's a crucial subject, this subject of discipleship. Bonhoeffer said, we can only achieve perfect liberty and enjoy fellowship with Jesus when His command, His call to absolute discipleship is appreciated in its entirety. A disciple is a follower of Christ. Discipleship is being committed to following Jesus. First of all, we're going to think about today the big idea. And the big idea in his book is costly versus cheap grace. He says this, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like a cheap peddler's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ as our master. That is what we mean by cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. You see, the grace that saves us, the grace, the gift of Christ in salvation, it never justifies our sin. It never sees sin as something acceptable. Grace washes us from sin. Grace cleanses us from sin. Grace forgives sin. Grace covers our sin. But grace never says that sin is acceptable to continue in our lives. The cheap grace which allows a professing Christian not to take sin seriously and, and not to change and move away from their sin is sometimes today called easy believe believism. It is the teaching that you can trust in Jesus for salvation, say a prayer for salvation, but your life does not need to radically change. You don't have to mourn. You don't have to hate. You don't have to turn away from your sin. You don't have to be determined about living as a follower of Jesus. 
it's a bit like sometimes we say during the troubles. When some terrorists, before they would go and commit their atrocities, they would go to a, a priest to have their sins forgiven. Somehow thinking, going and confessing what they were going to do and getting doing a wee ritual, somehow that would make them right with the Lord, even though they're still determined to do their wickedness. Cheap grace is saying, listen, you can live whatever way you want and still be saved. And this idea of cheap grace, it doesn't agree with the Bible. Well, look here at Titus 2 and verse 11. And there Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, do you notice what he says there about grace? The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains us to turn away from that which is sinful. The grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It speaks of how Jesus has come to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for Himself a special people. You see, true grace, saving grace, is a grace that transforms us. Such grace, Bonhoeffer says, is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You're brought, bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap to us. We're not to see grace as something cheap. Yes, salvation is a gift of God, but it's not something we embrace in a cheap way that doesn't impact and change our lives. Bonhoeffer uses Peter as a great example and says, in the life of Peter, grace and discipleship are inseparable. Grace and discipleship are inseparable. He had received the grace which costs. He was saved by grace to be a follower of Jesus. Now, Bonhoeffer in his book, he gives a, a really good explanation of how the church has moved away from its original position of accepting costly grace, which changes people's lives, and has brought into it this cheap grace. He says, as Christianity spread and the church became more secularized, this realization of the costliness of grace gradually faded. Monasticism became a living protest against the secularization of Christianity and of the cheapening of grace. Monasticism was represented as an individual achievement which the mass of the laity could not be expected to emulate. 
By thus limiting the application of the commandments of Jesus to a restricted group of specialists, the church evolved the fatal conception of a double standard, a maximum and minimum standard of Christian obedience. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the church moved away from this being disciples of Christ. But there are some in the church who wanted to be serious about that. So let's make them into monks. Let's give them a, a special place to live called a monastery. And so the rest of the church, we don't have to be serious and very committed to following Christ. But these people who want to be, these special people, they can do that if they want. You see, serious discipleship was then seen within the medieval church as just the calling of a special few. The rest of the church, as long as they turned up on a Sunday, as long as they performed certain duties, they had, didn't have to take this following of Jesus. This talk of taking up your cross and dying to self, they didn't have to take that very seriously. Yeah, you can leave that to the monks. They can do that. But then he says this about the Reformation. When the Reformation came, the providence of God raised Martin Luther to restore the gospel of pure, costly grace. He showed him through the Scriptures that the following of Christ is not the achievement or merit of a slack view, like the monks, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. Hitherto, the Christian life had been the achievement of a few choice spirits under the exceptionally favorable conditions of monasticism. Now it is a duty laid on every Christian living in the world. So he says, when the Reformation came, and Martin Luther, you remember, he had been a monk before he was then converted to Christ. He made it clear that in being a saved person, being a person who had come to know Christ, you are to be a disciple. You are to be serious about following Christ and living out His commands in your life. Now, Bonhoeffer says, it was not the justification of sin, but the justification of the sinner that drove Luther from the cloister back to the world. The grace he received was costly grace. And he says, you know, do you understand what changed Luther? What absolutely transformed him was not coming to an idea that your sin was justified, your sin was acceptable. And you could be a follower of God and not worry about your sin. What transformed Luther was this knowledge that when you come to trust in Jesus, you are declared as righteous in the sight of God. Your sin is forgiven. You're made into someone new. And this awareness of forgiveness through trusting in Christ alone, by grace alone, it was it that totally changed him. Bonhoeffer, though, says he believed this right balance between grace and discipleship, which had been restored through Luther to the church, was quickly lost again in his followers. He says, Luther had said that grace alone can save. His followers took up his doctrine and repeated it word for word, but they left out its invariable corollary, the obligation of discipleship. The justification of the sinner in the world degenerated into the justification of sin and the world. Costly grace was turned into cheap grace without discipleship. 
And what he was saying, it's a bit debatable here in history, but what he was saying was that the followers of Luther didn't keep the right balance. That grace which saves has to be accompanied with discipleship. And they move from the sense of the sinner being justified to now justifying sin, justifying the worldly ways of the world in people's lives. And so this costly grace, this coming to Jesus and following Jesus, which, in which you have to pay a price to do that, is replaced with this cheap grace. Ah, trust in Jesus, but live whatever way suits you. He says the upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer to try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which through discipleship must love and detest, has freed me from that. You see, when people embrace this twisted, this perverted version of the gospel, that you can trust in Jesus, and when you rest in Him alone, you can then do whatever way you want and live whatever way you please, and you're all right with God. It says then people decide themselves how they can live and go to church on a Sunday morning to be reminded sins are forgiven, but basically live whatever way you want, and you're all, you're all right. That is cheap grace. He says, and he was part of the Lutheran church, he says, we Lutherans have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace. And there we have drunk of the poison which has killed the life of following Christ. The price we're having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is the only inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at such a low cost. We confess that although our church is orthodox as far as our doctrine of grace is concerned, we are no longer sure that we are members of a church which follows its Lord. We must therefore attempt to recover a true understanding of the mutual relationship between grace and discipleship. Bonhoeffer, as he looked at the church of his day, he saw a church that was not serious about following Jesus. He saw professing Christians who were not serious about taking the commandments of the Word of God and obeying them and living them out in their lives. He didn't see people who were committed and really devoted to Jesus. Yes, they were sound in what they believed. Yes, they believed that you're saved through grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone. Yes, they held to those doctrines of the Reformation. But he failed to see a church full of disciples devoted to Jesus. And you know, it's not a challenge for us today. We can be really sound in what we believe. We can even speak against false teaching. But the big question is, are we seriously committed to being disciples of Jesus? There's always a challenge between understanding the relationship between salvation and good works. It's wrong to think that we're saved 
by our good works. No, salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is in Christ alone. It comes to us through faith alone. We don't do anything to earn that salvation. But it's equally wrong to think that salvation does not necessarily lead to a totally new life, a life of good works in which we honor the Lord. If our belief is that salvation does not lead, necessarily lead to a life of devotion to Christ and good works for Him, instead of true Christianity, we have cheap grace. Cheap grace is saying, I can go to church on a Sunday and sing the praises to the Lord. But when I go to my workplace, to my university, to my school, to wherever the rest of the week, I don't have to take it seriously, following Jesus and keeping His commandments. Brings us to our second point. We've seen the big idea, and then secondly, we see the call of Jesus. In Mark 2, we read this, and as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Levi is also Matthew, the tax collector. According to our text, Bonhoeffer says, there is no road to faith or discipleship, no other road, only obedience to the call of Jesus. At the call, Levi leaves all that he has, the old life is left behind and completely surrendered. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. It remains an abstract, abstract idea, a myth, which has a place for the fatherhood of God, but omits Christ as a living Son. And a Christianity of that kind is nothing more than less than the end of discipleship. In such a religion, there is a trust in God, but no following of Christ. Now, what he is arguing there is that Levi, Matthew, when he was caught, his Christianity was about following and having a relationship with Jesus. And Bonhoeffer says the problem is today, people have a trust in God. They accept certain truths about God and have a trust in God, but they do not have this living, transforming relationship in which they follow Jesus. And what we have then is a perversion of Christianity. There is the intellectual belief system, but no following of Jesus. We have to emphasize that discipleship, the following of Jesus, this relationship with Him, this obeying His commands, this radical new living is an indispensable part of Christianity. Because remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew? What did He say to Peter, James, and John? Go and make disciples. He wasn't saying go and get people who will profess faith in me and say a prayer. No, get people who will be serious 
about following thee. This discipleship has to be on the terms of Jesus. It isn't to be on our own terms. If you've got a Bible, or turn to Luke chapter 9, if you've got your Bible. I'm going to read a wee passage here. Luke 9 and verse 57. This is entitled in my Bible, The Cost of Following Jesus. Now, Luke 9 and 57, it says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is walking along, and these three men come to him, and there's a conversation with each of them about discipleship. But they each have the wrong idea of discipleship. The first man who voluntarily commits himself to follow Jesus, he hasn't any clear awareness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus puts him off and he says about there and how the, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you don't realize what the challenge is to follow me and puts the fellow off. Now, the second and third men will follow Jesus, but it has to be on their terms. One says, let me first bury my father, and it's likely his father wasn't even dead at this stage, so sometime in the future it might be convenient. And the other one says, let me go back and say goodbye to those in my family. They're basically saying they know their situations better than Jesus does, and Jesus therefore needs to adjust his expectation of them to suit the way they see the situation. Bonhoeffer says, the disciple places himself at the master's disposal, but at the same time retains the right to dictate his own terms. But then discipleship is no longer discipleship, but a program of our own to be arranged to suit ourselves. You know, I'm convinced Jesus deliberately said things very provocatively and to the extreme to, to get across to people that following Him is so serious, it's so challenging, there's such a cost to it. Bonhoeffer says, the road to faith passes through obedience to the call of Jesus. Unless a definite step is demanded the call vanishes into thin air. And if men imagine that they can follow Jesus without taking this step, that's a step of obedience, they are deluding themselves. And he says the following two propositions hold good and are equally true. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Only he who believes is obedient. So, faith is needed to be obedient. 
But only he who is obedient really believes. He's basically saying what James would say, faith without works, faith without obedience is dead. James says, you talk about your faith, show me your faith by your works, how you obey. Now, from the point of view of justification, Bonhoeffer says, it is necessary thus to separate them, faith alone. But we must never lose sight of this essential unity, for faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. The way this is, I think, put very well by some of the Reformers is that we are saved through faith alone, not by works. But the faith which saves us is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works. Your faith in Jesus Christ, if it is a true, genuine faith, it has to transform your life in a life of obedience. And if there's no obedience to what Jesus calls us to do, if there's no obedience to what Jesus calls us to be, then we have to say there is no real faith. Bonhoeffer says, unless he obeys, a man cannot believe. No one should be surprised at the difficulty of faith. If there's some part of his life where he is consciously resisting or disobeying the commandment of God, how can you hope to enter into communion with him when at the same point in your life you're running away from him? When people complain, for instance, that they find it hard to believe, it is a sign of deliberate or unconscious disobedience. It is all too easy to put them off by offering the remedy of cheap grace. What he is saying is sometimes what is presented as a problem of faith in people's lives is in reality a problem of obedience. They don't believe because they don't want to believe because of the consequences it will have on their lives. Brings us to our final point, which is Jesus challenges cheap grace. If you've got your Bible again, turn to Matthew 19. I'll read a wee passage here. Matthew 19 and verse 16. Matthew 19 and 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor yourself. The young man said to him, all these have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell whatever you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. Now, if a young man came to you about eternal life, I doubt any of us would have answered him the way Jesus answered him. Bonhoeffer, commentating on this, says, eternal life is for him an academic problem, which is worth discussing with a good master. He wanted to speak about eternal life to a good rabbi. He now realizes he is talking not to a good master, but to God Himself. And therefore, the only answer he receives from the Son of God is an unmistakable pointer to the commandment of the one God. And he says this, the questioner stands before God Himself and is shown up as one who is trying to evade the revealed will of God, while all the time he knows that will already. He is challenged to drop the academic question and recall to a simple obedience to the will of God as it has been revealed. In other words, Bonhoeffer says, what is happening here is this young fellow he knows what he needs to do. He knows he needs a life lived in obedience to God and to His commandments. But in reality, although he says otherwise, in reality, he's not willing to do it. He's not willing to obey the Lord. And so, he basically raises an academic question. He wants an academic debate to give himself excuse for not obeying the will of God. He had hoped to avoid committing himself to any definite moral obligations by forcing Jesus to discuss his spiritual problems. He had hoped Jesus would offer him a solution of his moral difficulties, but instead he finds Jesus attacking not his question, but himself. The young man was not willing to embrace the lordship of God the Lordship of Jesus. And he was trying to figure out some other way in which he could be right with God without having to accept costly grace, grace which would change his life. The devil has an answer for moral difficulties, and he says, keep on posing problems and you will escape the necessity of obedience. All along the line, we're trying to evade the obligation of single-minded, literal obedience. Here was a man, like many today, he just could not accept the commandments of God. He could not accept the commandment of Christ. He could not accept the Lordship of Jesus over his life. He did a lot of sound talk, he did a lot of fine speech to make himself seem good, but he wasn't prepared to be a disciple of Jesus. One final quote, Bonhoeffer says, we must not do violence to the Scripture by interpreting them in terms of an abstract principle. And what he means by that is, when the Bible says, for example, if someone uh, abuses you, turn the other cheek, we're not to make it into some great spiritual principle which gets us away from the importance of not 
returning insult for insult. We try to spiritualize the clear commandments of God so we don't have to obey them. And the question which Bonhoeffer asked all those years ago, the question which Jesus asked, is the question which he asked Matthew. Are you willing not to say a prayer? Are you willing to be serious about following me as your Savior and as your Lord? Are you willing to let my word, my truth, rule your life? Let us pray. Father, there's a lot of challenge in this truth. And Father, just give us an understanding of the danger of cheap grace, of this idea that we can have faith without repentance, have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Father, grant that we would certainly not be the way Bonhoeffer saw the Lutheran church all those years ago, a church that is orthodox, a church that is sound in what it believes, but not a church that is serious about following Jesus, about obeying Christ, about letting His Word, His truth, change and reshape our lives. Father, thank you just for the reminder today of Bonhoeffer and, and Father, his willingness to do that which was right, which took him even to his death. But Father, thank you even much more for Jesus who went all the way to the cross, who obeyed you all the way to the cross and calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wednesday night at pre-communion, we'll be thinking about discipleship and the cross. We're going to conclude that lovely old hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.